0: This morning I began the journey through one of my favorite sections of Scripture, which begins in John chapter 13 and really culminates in John 18 when we find the lessons of Jesus right before He is tried and killed. When I think of this section, I I like to think of it in my mind as the words of a dying man. As Jesus was facing death, as we find in John 13 and verse 1, It says that knowing that He would go to the Father, He loved His disciples to the end. Now John chapter 13 uh, through John chapter 17, I believe all take place, and you, you may debate this and that's okay. I believe they all take place in the upper room right after the instituting of the Lord's Supper. And so, what we looked at this morning was the beginning of this this journey through what I like to think of as as maybe the the key, the key ideas or the highlights of chapters 13 through 17, and then 18. And there's there's seven there's seven points, and I, I covered three this morning, and we'll look at four tonight. Uh, someone came up to me this morning and said, well, "What was point number two? And people do that all the time with me, and I actually have the points up here on the screen as you can see. No, it's not working, and that's okay. Um, Apple products, uh, sometimes you just want to throw them out the door, and that's okay. But I want to make sure that we have these clear. And one of the easy ways to do that is to think of them by chapter. Okay, So chapter 13 is the first one. Chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet. And He teaches them the lesson of being a servant to one another. And then also in chapter 13, He tells them a new commandment, which is not really new, but is a new commandment that they love one another. And that's the seal or the sign of their discipleship is to love one another. And the third one was, so that's be a servant, love one another. The third one we find in John 14, which He talks about preparing a place for us. Let not your heart be troubled. And so, The third point is that He he tells them is to look to the reward. Be anxious for the return. Think about things uh, in in an eternal mindset through the the lens of eternity. Then we get into into chapter 15. I'll make sure. Yeah, Chapter 15 is the fourth one. Chapter 15 is the fourth one. And right when you dive into chapter 15, He says that you need to abide in me. And so the the theme of that one is, is to abide in Christ. The fifth one is in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And the way I like to say it is, is that He's telling them, I am sending help. I'm going to send help. And we'll look at that in a second. That's chapters 14, 15, and 16. And then in chapter 17, we find the prayer of Christ, where He prays for unity. And so He tells us to be unified. And then in chapter 18, we find Jesus who is courageous through His fear and is unashamed of His identity. And that's what they needed to hear as well is to be unashamed. And so 13 and 13 are, be a servant and love one another. Chapter 14 is look to the reward. Chapter 15 is abide in Christ. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 are I'm sending help. Chapter 17 is be unified. And chapter 18 is be unashamed. Now let's dive in let 's dive into the fourth one in chapter fifteen. If you want to turn in your Bible to John fifteen and verse one, we find that that Jesus understands that they 're about to enter into a very difficult time and in the same way that when we enter into very difficult or stressful traumatic events that we tend to do maybe what they were what was their natural inclination, which was to face it alone instead of facing it with Christ. Uh, you know, I, I find, find a, a theme uh, throughout the writings of Paul and I'm in Romans 14 right now. One of the things is, is he, he says in Romans 14, close to the beginning, about how it is Jesus who causes us to stand. Contrasted with us seeking to make ourselves stand. We can't justify ourselves. We can't earn anything on our own. We earn death, and that's it. It is Jesus who causes us to stand. We can't face it on our own. And so let's look at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this My Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be My disciples. As the Father loved Me, I also have loved you. Abide in My love. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so Jesus' vine analogy helps us to see that we are to seek our sustenance, as I talked about this morning, our fulfillment, our contentment, our wisdom, our strength in Him. He doesn't expect us to be able to do it on our own. There are are many things that we encounter in our lives, many of which are not necessarily bad, that we tend to abide in, if you were to think of that. That idea of abiding in something. There are a lot of things vying for the spot of God or vying for the spot of Christ on our heart to abide in those things. To give our minds, our attention, our efforts to trust in those things. Sometimes it's ourselves. Sometimes it's a job. Sometimes it's a family member. Sometimes it's a spouse. Sometimes it's an ideology. Sometimes it's a false religion of some kind. And so it is... It is important and necessary for those things not to consume us. It's easy to abide in things other than Christ. I want to look at four really practical ways or ideas about abiding in Christ. How can we abide in Christ? One of the first ways we can abide in Christ is to abide in His Word. In a couple of places just in John, Jesus reminds us of this. In John 8.31, He says, "...If you abide in My Word, you are My disciples indeed." So many times I go to these passages and I just want to start talking about them. I'm going to go to the next one. John twelve forty eight. Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And so, if we want to be guided by Christ, he says, then abide in my word. My word is, the, he says, the direction for you it is the pathway. It is the wisdom. It is better than anything else. There are many times, and I've seen this as sometimes we study and we'll get to a passage that maybe we don't understand exactly, or that we have a strong opinion about, or that we even we, we feel like we have a disagreement with the conclusion that we think maybe is obvious in the passage, and we need simply to defer to the wisdom of God. That it doesn't require us to really understand or even agree. Our flesh is standing in the way of maybe our agreement or our understanding, but we can choose to just trust His wisdom. And Jesus says, Abide in My Word. Trust that. And you will abide in Me in that way. Another way is to abide in His works. You know, he's, a, he's heading towards being arrested, tried, put to death, buried, resurrected. And we abide in His works, then we follow Him in that path. We follow Him through an unjust treatment of the world, and a denial of self and a death to self. As we become Christians, we are united with His death and His burial, in in baptism and raised to walk a new new life, uniting with His resurrection. But we do that on a daily basis of a dying to self and a living to Christ. Galatians 2.20, one of the ones that pops into my head, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, Christ who lives in me, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave Himself for me. But the life that I'm living is a life in which, if you were to think of, of it in, in the terms of being possessed, we are Christ-possessed. We are allowing Him to live through us. We are become a vessel of His life. And so we abide in His Word, we abide in His works, we abide in prayer to Him. When we abide in prayer to Him, essentially what that means is, is that we are actually being honest with Him about who we are. About our imperfections, about our our insecurities, our doubts. We are inviting Him into the situation of life. Uh, We are showing our utter trust and our utter honesty of our own failings. And in so doing, we invite Him in instead of blocking Him out. It's that whole, that whole struggle that I talked about in class uh, between the, the seeking to, to serve two masters and despising the one. When we acknowledge our, our shortcomings, then we invite Christ in. But if we are unwilling to admit our shortcomings, then we don't want to think about Christ. We don't want to think about what He has to say or the holiness that confronts our impurities. And so we come to Him in prayer. And so we, we abide in His Word, we abide in His works, we abide in prayer, and we abide in His body, the church. First John 1.7, John says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sins. And the term fellowship is the, the term koinonia. Uh, it is this idea of oneness. It is the whole plan of God from the very beginning before before creation. The plan of God was that the relationship enjoyed between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would be then shared with humanity. That we would enter into that relationship through the pathway of Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is the pathway into that relationship in a joining together with Christ. And so, when we are in that relationship with Christ, the Father, and the Spirit that they share with one another then we share that same unity with anyone else who is in that situation, which means we should think of fellowship in maybe a different way than we do. You know, we think of a fellowship meal or a time of fellowship that we hang out at someone's house or something like that. And, and, and truly the fellowship or the koinonia or the, and, and even in, uh, in, I believe it's in Romans, uh, it's translated, koinonia is sometimes translated as the sharing in the financial support or sending support to someone. It is a full union with the body that we interact with. And so to think of fellowship is really the idea of sharing Christ with one another. So if you think of, say, a fellowship meal, the meal is not the fellowship. The meal is the means by which we can share Christ with one another. And any other thing that you might think of as fellowship, it isn't the substance of the thing or the occasion it is the fact of what is being shared or the opportunity to be shared at that moment because we are the body of Christ. We share Christ with one another. Alright, so that's, that's the fourth one. In chapter 15, Jesus says, abide in me. So abide in Christ. So, be a servant, love one another, look to the Lord, abide in me. He says, abide in Christ. Which leads us into, I'm drawing a little snippet out of chapter 14, 15, and 16 where he tells them he's sending help because he's going to leave. He knows he's going to send into, he- into heaven and that they will be left there alone, but th- they didn't need to fear because he was going to send help. And so let's look at a-, at a few different ones. John 14, starting verse 25, and then we'll go to John 15 and 16. John 14, 25 Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Those are are two pretty big things right there. Teaching you all things and bringing into your remembrance everything that I've said, all of the words in red that we have in our Bible, those are all by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and other inspired men. And then the idea of all things. Now, it doesn't mean everything. In fact, the very last verse of John shows us that if everything had been recorded the, that Jesus did and said, the books uh, would be too much that the world couldn't hold them, right? But, and so it isn't everything, but it's everything that we would need. And so he says, everything that I've said, you'll be able to remember those. And everything else that you need. Then he says, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then you go to chapter 15, verse 26, 15:26, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so again, he says, there's a helper that's coming. The term that's used for the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 16 and verse 12. Chapter 16 and verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now that has a, a little bit of a maybe a double or triple meaning. The idea of him saying things that they can't bear at that moment. For one, there's probably more that he wants to tell them that he doesn't have time to or that they wouldn't understand contextually at the moment or the very fact that what he's saying at that moment is pre-resurrection and that there were things that would only make sense once the resurrection was a reality. But let's continue. We'll talk about logistics in just a second. That's become one of my new favorite words is logistics. Logistics. On trips, I like to call myself the logistics specialist. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit were thinking logistics. The Father in heaven was thinking logistics when it came to the church and thinking about truth and thinking about teachers being sent out and and the equipping of those teachers. They wouldn't be left alone. The helper would be sent with them. All right, going back to John 16, verse 13, he says, However, when the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He speaks... He, uh, whatever excuse me, whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that, that the Father has are mine, therefore I said to you, excuse me, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The, the, what I think of as the, the line of authority is, is that the, the Father begets the Son and that the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son that the Son does the will of the Father, but they are one and the same, and that the Spirit is sent by the authority of Christ who speaks the words of Christ, which are by the authority of the Father. They all share the same authority. So that any, anyone who would speak or write by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit essentially is, is speaking or writing the words of Christ, or at least by the authority of Christ. They are the things that Christ wanted, wanted us to know. So death was imminent, but even in understanding that in His ascension He would leave, Jesus understood, as I think it's easy to see, that there was only so much that Jesus could do. In three years, He discipled twelve men. Now there were many that followed, but He discipled twelve men. Now in His absence and the sending of the Spirit, what could happen is, that the Spirit could help anyone at any time, in, in a sense. Now, without getting into the specifics of how the miraculous power or the, uh, the miraculous outpouring of the Spirit was through the, the laying on of the apostles' hands, we find that in uh, Acts chapter 8 and some other places. That it is important for us to understand that as far as being able to disseminate truth, that it was actually more practical for the Spirit to do it rather than Jesus. And so as the as the apostles and other Christians would go out, they were able to go out, and that the more that I look at the instructions to those in the New Testament, one of the things that I see is, is that it was, while the while there was a diversity of gifts, it gifts, it would have been a fairly common thing. And I use the word common very loosely. But it wasn't a rare thing in the first century church, especially for congregations that an apostle had been in and traveled through, that you would have people there who were speaking by inspiration. That the Holy Spirit was propping up the church in its infancy until we have what we would call the canon of Scripture, until all of what Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to give had been given. You know, when you look at Jude there, verse, I believe verse 3, we, we have the idea of contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's this, it's this fulfillment of the knowledge that was needed that they had, that they had been given because of the Helper. I'll make sure I'm not skipping too much of my notes here. And so God's Word, it stands in the place. This is the idea... Of Jesus sending a helper in his place. The Bible stands in the place of Christ in the sense that the words that are recorded are by his authority through the Spirit that speaks what he tells it to speak. And so Jesus standing in the flesh, being able to teach us and guide us, is no longer necessary when we have his words. The Bible stands in the place of Christ as our guide unto truth and gives us a constant reassurance. In the future, of hope in the future, excuse me. And so we can take the words of inspired men as the words of Christ. Uh, one of the things that we can we can know about Scripture is, since it's through the Holy Spirit, is that, that it shows us the mind of God or the heart of God. You find that in 1 Corinthians 2. But you find the will of God as well. In 2 Peter chapter 1 we have this articulated in a different way. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 2, Peter says, "...grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue." <clears throat> By which we have been given, which, excuse me, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so a couple of things out of this passage. Number one, by the divine power that we find on display first, you would say first in the church in Pentecost and Acts 2, you find You find the kingdom come with power, as Jesus said it would come. And in coming, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, it came and inspired men so that they would understand the mind of God. As He calls it here, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Another way to think of that is is that we have everything we need to know to have what I call an informed faithfulness. Faithfulness is not something that we we make up the parameters of. Faithfulness is compliance to God in a relationship with Him. And so in, in keeping the covenant of our relationship with Him, He has shown us how to do that, how to have an informed faithfulness. Along with that, in giving us that, our ultimate goal in following everything that the Holy Spirit has given us, since it is from the mind of Christ, by the authority of Christ, and is essentially the words of Christ after His ascension, all of these words, when we we embrace them, they culminate in us partaking of the divine nature. That's one one of my favorite concepts of Scripture, and I believe it is the whole plan of God is for Him to be joined with Him in the relationship that He shares with the Spirit and the Son that we partake of the divine nature. That we become part of the body of Christ. That we come in fellowship with Him. And so then, what we have is uh, we have a life in which as we follow the words of Christ, we begin to grow into the image of Christ. Christ. And so in this life, as we grow, we are incrementally partaking of the divine nature more and more and more as we become more holy and less fleshly until one day we fully partake of the divine nature because of our union with Christ. Which brings us to the next point, point number six, which you find in John 17, which is be unified. Uh, so far, we've had be a servant, love one another, both in chapter 13. Chapter 14, look to the reward. Um, the fourth fourth point in chapter 15 is abide in Christ. The fifth point, chapter 14, 15, and 16, is I'm sending help, which we just looked at. The sixth point we find in chapter 17, uh, which is be unified. Now, chapter 17 is a... a a beautiful piece of Scripture because it is what some people call the true Lord's Prayer. Some of you may know of a, a professor from Freed Harbor named Dow Flatt who died years ago. And he was one of my professors and I took the book of John with him. And he said he wrote his, his uh, doctoral dissertation on John 17 and that he spent, he spent 40 hours a week in the library for one year writing about this chapter. I don't have that much information on this chapter, but there, this chapter is divided into three sections. In the first five or so verses, Jesus prays about Himself. In the next section, He prays about the apostles who are right there with Him. Remember, I believe when He's praying this, He's still in the upper room with them. They haven't left yet. And then He prays for us. And in all of these, He prays that, that we would glorify God and that we would have unity. That we would not be separated from Him or from each other. And so this dovetails, this dovetails with the idea of Him sending help because He sends help or the help or the Holy Spirit so that we can be unified in mind. We can have a unity of mind in what we believe. Our faith and the content of our faith would be the same. John 17, I'll start in verse 14. I I really want to read the whole chapter, but we'll start in verse 14. John 17, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. As, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Alright, so we have, this This is the end of the section where he's praying about the apostles that are there in his presence. And, and what he's praying is, is that the truth would be the thing that separates them from the world. It's the truth that purifies and, and glorifies God. It purifies us and sanctifies us or separates us from the world. And so in the sense that He was sending them help, the Holy Spirit to come and to give them truth, to remind them of what He said, those were the very words by which they would be able to be unified by being separate from the world. You see, our unity is found in our separation from the world. When we separate from the world through God's Word, through the Word of truth, sanctify them by your truth, your Word is truth. John 17.17 is one of the more quotable or memorable passages because it's so succinct in what it's saying. The fact that God's Word is the thing which separates us as His people in the body of Christ, the church, also known as the sphere of the saved, all saved people are in this group that the that the, word, the word forms. It is, it is the guidelines by which this group exists and in its signifying mark as he says is, is that it 's separate from the world. that when we abide in what the Holy Spirit has given us through His word, that it separates from us from the world and unifies us in itself. Then in verse 20 He changes gears and He begins to pray about us. Verse 20, He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they also may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. And there we have that that eternal plan of koinonia, of communion, of fellowship with the father the son and the spirit as they enjoyed in in excuse me in eternity past and will in eternity future that we through christ can join in with that relationship that we can have the oneness that they enjoy with them and with each other because of that and what particularly what we share in And this is just a mind boggling thing that we can share in the love that is shared between the Father and the Son. We can share that with them and with each other. A parallel I did to this is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, along with Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, give us an idea of of what the church should look like and how it should function. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and daring, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The stressing of the oneness, of the unity, the seeking after that, Unity keeps the pathway to heaven clear and visible. We have a clarity about it when we're unified. It's not something, the pathway to heaven is not this uncertain thing. It's not blurry. It's not hard to see. And it keeps the church separate from the world. And so when we think about the idea of Jesus facing His death and then leaving, He prays in their presence to them. For them to the Father that they would remain unified and particularly that they would remain unified through His Word that the Holy Spirit would present to them. Now that was important because He was going to leave. And because they were going to be beat down they were going to be enticed to leave and to follow after something else that would bring them back into the world and that would bring them out of unity with each other. The thing, that, the thing that causes Christians to have a breakdown of unity is when they begin to drift toward worldliness. That, that's when Christians begin to divide, is when they drift towards worldliness. Which brings us to the last point. And this is really not Jesus talking to them, but it's some things that Jesus did and the way he acts. When, when they come to arrest Him. And you find this in John 18. Jesus was not afraid. Now, let me clarify that. He was afraid in the sense that He knew what was about to happen. He prayed that the cup would pass from Him, but He did not let the fear overcome Him. The fear that we experience is the flesh telling us to stop doing the thing that we know we need to do. Courage is the choice not to do what the flesh tells us to do out of fear. And so the courage is the overcoming of the fear or the acting in spite of the fear. We find that in Jesus' actions in John 18. We'll start in verse 1 of John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with His disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that would come upon Him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, "I am he." And Judas who betrayed him also stood with them. Now when he said to them, "I am he," they drew back and fell to the ground. It was a terrifying or a shocking thing for them to see such boldness and courage in the face of what was facing him. Then he asked them again, "Who are you speaking?" And they said, "Jesus of Nazareth." Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek Me, let these go their way. What Jesus shows us is that when the figurative mob comes to take us away, that we can, as He stood firm in His identity of His purpose of going to the cross, we can stand firm in the identity of Christ. Because time and time again, the figurative mob will come to take us. They will come. They will accuse us. Are you of Christ? Are you part of the body of Christ? Are you a Christian? Are you? And these accusations won't necessarily come in those particular words. But they will come. And we have to be courageous through them. When you look at a, a parallel of this event in Matthew 26, look at what Matthew records in Matthew 26, verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the Scriptures of the, of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. And we know what happened with them. We know that they left. I'm always impressed with John. It seems that he kind of stood close and was the only one there present at the cross we find that Peter denies Christ and that he goes out and wept bitterly because why? Because he showed himself to be ashamed. But I tend not to look too harshly on the scattering because they were acting acting in a reality that we don't live in today. They had not yet experienced and seen the resurrection. And so their life, their actions, they were things that at this point in time, they were fearful of standing with Christ. And yet after the resurrection, what do we find? We find the accusation from the same types of people and groups of people in the Jewish leadership, hey, you're with Jesus, right? Hey, we know you were one of the ones with Him, right? Hey, you were hanging out with Him, right? You're one of His disciples, right? Stop talking about Him. We cannot help but teach and preach the things that we have witnessed. We're going to obey God rather than man. And why was that? Why is it that they could stand unashamed of Christ it's because Christ's work was to face death and then overcome it. Jesus knew that the purpose that He was moving towards was going to be one of victory. And because of that, when we follow Him, and this is what He, he needed them to know and we need to know today. That we're going to face these times in which we're tempted to shrink back from who we really are instead of looking to the one who overcame the ultimate enemy and standing firm and saying, it doesn't matter what man does to me. And he went to his death. But he conquered death. And so what are the seven points? At least the ones that I picked the last words of Christ and actions of Christ before His death that we find in John. Chapter 13, we find two. We find that He he washes their feet. Be a servant and love one another. Chapter 14, look to the reward. Have an eternal mindset. Number four is in chapter 15. He says, abide in Me. You can't do it alone. Chapters 14, 15, and 16, He says, even when I'm gone, I'm going to send help. The Holy Spirit is going to come and you will know what you need to know. You're not going to be wandering around in the dark blind." The sixth point we find in chapter 17, he says, stay united with one another through the Word. Don't be divided. And then chapter 18, he shows us the example of not being ashamed, but being courageous in the face of fear. And we need to stand firm. Did everybody get those seven points? (laughs) I appreciate being asked to come and to speak. And I'm glad that I was able to share one of my favorite sections of Scripture. I hope that, that maybe clarifies this part of John. I like to think of them in the ways that, that Jeff presents them for, to the kids of learning the different parts of a book so that we can, add, sort of in a snapshot, see what it says. This is one of the, to me, one of the richest sections of Scripture because it is a section of preparation for us going out into the world to face the enemy. If you're not in Christ, then when you follow His death into His burial and His resurrection through baptism, then you can, have, you can have eternal life because you have entered into union with the One who has overcome death. If you haven't been united with Him, then you can't overcome death. And I hope that as Christians who are weak and frail, but seeking ever slowly and stumbling to be faithful, that we can be emboldened and encouraged and even challenged by these words to reassert our faithfulness and our trust in Him instead of seeking to go it on our own. We're going to have a song of encouragement uh, during which, if you would like, you can make a need known that we can lift your name up in prayer or that you can make a need known even to become a Christian or to study to become a Christian. And so, if you have any need, please come as we stand to sing the song of encouragement. All for you
1: and for me. See on the portals, He's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling All